You are listening to Shadow of the Wing, and I am Antonia Chain. This show is a serialized telling of the novel Shadow of the Wing by Antonia Chain. To find out more, visit antoniachain.com. Listeners are advised that some content is only suitable for a mature audience. Please don't do that, Don. Jess couldn't remember how many times she'd asked him not to sit picking his scabs during the group. Generally, group leaders were trained to ignore attention-seeking behaviours during group time, because generally that was exactly what attention-seekers were trying to achieve, and Don Moody was no different. He grew bored when someone else spoke and quickly became fidgety and combative. His favourite ploy was to scratch at the peripheries of one of the scabs covering his many wounds until a small crust lifted. Then he liked to peel off the scab slowly from the wound. Sometimes he flicked the scabs to the floor, sometimes he ate them. All the group were wise to his attention-seeking, and mostly they ignored it. But this had the effect of making it worse, and he would flick scabs towards the feet of other patients or to Jess. On this occasion, he was using his teeth to gnaw at a scab on the back of his hand and theatrically licking the blood as it oozed. Blade! Fucking call me Blade! How many times do I have to tell you? I've got rights and if I say my name is fucking Blade, you have to do what I say. I'm going to change it legally. Don, as I've told you before, you will not be using that name in this group. We will not be using that name in this group now or ever. That would be disrespectful to your victims. And whilst we acknowledge our wrongs here, we do not celebrate them. You certainly do have rights. Whilst you're sectioned, you do not have the power to change your name without our agreement. We haven't given it. You are called Donald, and that is the name you will be called. Jess had been through this so many times it was exasperating, but it was also true that gentle repetition could become learned behaviour, so it was an important process to go through for Don, although he did not realise this. You should kick him out of the group, Jess. We're all sick of the pathetic little twat. Jess was surprised by Terry's input. She rarely spoke, so this was unusual and would need careful handling. She did not want to encourage any attempt by the group to get behind Terry and gang up on Don, but on the other hand, she did not want to dismiss what Terry had said in case she withdrew from participating again. She invited Terry to carry on with what she'd started to say. Well, he does this every time. He draws attention to his scratches, which he thinks makes him look hard. We should call him Penknife. Everyone in the group laughed, everyone except Don. Or looked as if he was going to cry. 
man of the worst cuts anyone's ever seen in this hospital. Everyone knows that. The nurses say so, and Dr. Bergman has even done a case study about me and called me a remarkable case. No one in any of the hospitals has scars as bad as mine. I've even stuck a pen under my skin, and I bet you can't do that, you bitch. It was true that his tolerance of pain had led him to be tested for congenital analgesia, the condition in which sufferers cannot actually feel pain. This test was conducted when Don had opened a hole in the side of his body and simply wiped the pen fully under his skin and through tissue and muscle. The pen had to be surgically removed and Don asked that it be done without anaesthetic. It wasn't, of course. Tests evidence no such disorder. Don just had an extreme indifference to pain, the kind rarely seen even in a hospital such as Hilgram. His indifference to pain meant that he experienced a drug-like high from the endorphins produced by his brain during the cutting. It also made him, in his eyes, special. He took pride in the damage he did to himself. There were a lot of self-harmers in psychiatric care, and Hilgram had them in spades. They were known as cutters, but in fact would bite, bang their heads against walls, deliberately scold themselves. Whatever caused pain of some kind in a physical, emotional, and for some, a spiritual release. Don had no status in the hospital and was unpopular. He decided to take the crown of the self-harmers, and it was undeniable that his scars were the worst most staff, Jess included, had seen. Terry was goading him. Scratches, man, the scratches. Call yourself a cutter. Don became as hysterical as a dethroned pageant queen, and with it, pompous. How dare you? How dare you have a go at me, you burn-faced witch? Get her away from me, Jess, or I swear. Jess discreetly nodded for two of the nursing team to come and collect Don, while she wrapped the group up for the afternoon. Terry looked neither concerned by what had happened, nor triumphant, and that niggled at Jess. Something was going on but she wasn't sure what. She would have to give it more thought. For the next two weeks, it happened at every group, over and over, always the same. Terry, for no obvious reason, would take the opportunity to have a go at Don, and the issue was always the same. He was an odious nobody who was pathetic. Jess looked through the group notes and could find no common denominator to provoke the exchanges, although the outcome was beginning to be tediously the same. Terry insulted Don. Don got upset. Group had to finish. Jess needed to talk to Terry. She would sort out a private one-to-one -one session with her. As it was, events overtook the intention, and the meeting to discuss Don was no longer required. Jess breathed in the peppery, fresh aroma of the ginger and lemon tea. Angie kept the equivalent of a specialist tea shop in the cupboard in her room. A tea for every occasion except a wedding, she would say. Jess wasn't really sure what she meant, but she enjoyed having a pick from the selection. Ginger and lemon were said to be cleansing and calming, and that was always a good thing in the hospital. How's Tia holding up, Jess? Well, it's been rough, to be honest. She feels devastated. She knows she was a scapegoat, but she absolutely refutes that the blade came from her department. I support her, I really do, but, well, 
Where could the blade have come from, Ange? The truth was, it caused arguments and problems between them, and it had looked rocky for a while. Jess wasn't sure if Tio expected her to resign in support, and Jess had considered that, but at the end of the day, it wouldn't have achieved anything. I suppose one thing she can take from the mess is that she was right, said Angie. Since they've gone back to the fuzzy felt and finger paints, it's like the Marie Celeste in OT. Patients have left in droves. Without her, it's just fallen apart. I don't suppose any real consolation will come from that, but make sure you tell her. Several of the women were hanging around the nurses' station in the ward corridor. The nurses' station, as it was grandly called, was simply a desk with a whiteboard behind it. Behind that was the old sluice room that now doubled as a locker room for staff and a kitchenette. There was a nurses' station on each of the men's and women's quarters and in the shared recreation unit of the PTU. Each was staffed by at least one nurse 24 hours a day. The duty nurse had responsibility for keeping an eye on the overall functioning of the relevant section of the ward, watching out for those telltale signs that something was going to kick off documenting incidents and taking calls. The task was so very dull, it was shared between the whole team on a duty roster of no more than three-hour stretches, whether day or night. Boredom could lead to carelessness. Perhaps because of this, because they had first-hand evidence of how boring duty could be, a gaggle of nurses could always be found at the nurses' station having a cuppa and a chat. Often nurses not on duty spent entire days floating between them and doing little else. They were often joined by patients who might chat, gossip or whine depending on who it was and what they were after. They were usually after something. On this occasion though, it appeared to be light-hearted flirting between the female patients and the male nurses. The female nurses were turning a blind eye. What they were actually after that none of the nurses noticed, was what was going on in the rec room at the pool table. If they did a good job, there would be quids in with cigarettes later. This was a fairly regular routine employed by patients, depending on who organised it, and what the rewards, or possibly punishments for not helping, were. It was one of the very few times the patients worked as a team. Terry walked over to the pool table where Don Moody was potting balls, alone. He noticed her walking towards him and moved back, holding his cue like a cricket bat, ready to use it as a weapon. He was afraid of her. He didn't know why, but she made him nervous. Terry was dismissive. Don't get hysterical, you pissy little twat. You're nothing. I wouldn't soil my hands on you. If you're so special, prove it she said. She threw the piece of blade onto the pool table like a piece of litter, turned and walked away. She knew that giving a blade was as dangerous as giving a suicidal person a loaded gun, but she felt no concern about this. As soon as she walked into the seating area of the rec room, he had gone from her mind. Once into the view of the women around the nurses' station, they moved away, cackling profanities at the male nurses who moments before They'd apparently been trying to seduce. Don grabbed the blade in a panic before anyone else could take it off him. An actual blade! He was ecstatic. 
but also terrified someone would come over and take it off him. Had anyone seen? Was that what Terry was going to do, tell the nurses? That would be just like the witch, to grass him up before he'd had the chance to use it. He saw, though, that she was just sat with her acolytes, ignoring him. He would like to bloody well cut her, he thought, slice her till she couldn't scream anymore. But he would get caught before he could really enjoy himself, and they would take away his blade. It was a no-brainer for him. Him first, her later. He went into the toilet and drew the sharp blade down his thumb. His thumb opened like a flower. He put it in his mouth and sucked like a baby, euphoria enveloping him. The gym room was, unusually for any space in Hilgram, full of people and staff. Everyone was focusing on their bit of the evening, the bingo players eagerly awaiting their numbers, the staff managing whichever group they had been assigned, the smokers, tea and toilet queues, and the simple fact was, no one was watching for one of the bingo players going into a cupboard, especially a cupboard that everyone assumed was locked. On his part, Don could barely believe his luck and felt as if some provident spirit was guiding him. He found that the room was open quite by accident. A small collection of small but linked events collided together as he reached out and tested the handle. For secure patients, all doors presented an opportunity. It was a common, almost unconscious habit of many people in locked accommodation to test doors, and on this occasion, remarkably into his astonishment, he found it unlocked. He slipped in and marvelled at the sight. This was much better than his wardroom with the porthole where the nurses might spy on him and stop him having fun. Don Moody had a private room for the scheduled three hours of bingo all to himself. His precious blade in his pocket carried like a good luck charm, too important to leave in his room where it might be found. Someone or something was watching over him. He would make the most of his unexpectedly good fortune. He would prove to Dr Bergman, but especially to that Count Terry, that he was the best. No one could ever again deny that he was a very special psychiatric case study. With just a few cuts, neither Dr. Bergman nor Terry featured in his thoughts. Each drawing of the blade through flesh took him into a transcendental state beyond anything achievable through drugs or sex or killing. Nothing compared to the profound sense of well-being experienced as he sliced into his own flesh with the sharp blade. He watched, transfixed, as the blood seeped in slow rivers from the wounds and pooled around him. Just like many other addicts, he reached for the feeling he recalled from his first ever cut. But like the first ever hit of a drug, the feeling was elusive. Like other addicts, he did not know when to stop. Don Moody's last conscious thought was that he could not allow anyone to take his beautiful and wonderful blade. Had Jim McCormack found him just four minutes later, Don would have died of blood loss, and Jim would have lived. If you're in 
enjoyed the show and would like to read more stories by Antonia Chain, you can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and at her website, AntoniaChain.com. Thanks for listening.